Welcome to this APTA podcast. I'm Troy Elliott, and thanks for joining us for a regular roundup of what's going on in advocacy for the profession, as well as the latest developments in uh, regulatory and payment arenas. Now, if you've been listening to these podcasts, you know that the 2022 physician fee schedule proposed by CMS has been taking up a lot of our attention lately. And that's, you know, for good reason, given the proposed payment cuts and the PTA differential and zero allowances for telehealth delivered by PTs and PTAs. So it's pretty hard to ignore. But the uh, commercial payment world continues to turn. And we thought that it's about time to find out what's been happening in that space. So in this podcast, we hope to bring you up to speed with some of the most notable issues and trends. And to do that, I'm joined by Elise Ladowick, APTA Lead Senior Practice Management Specialist, and Alice Bell, Senior Payment Specialist here at APTA. Welcome and thanks for being here today. Um, so let's start this way. Um, let's just let's just start kind of at the 30,000 foot level and talk a little bit about what's been happening in the commercial sp uh, payer space uh, since the pandemic, during the pandemic, uh, while we've been um, looking at uh, CMS and fee schedule and stuff like that. What's been going on, Alice? So one of the things that we've been focused on uh, both during the pand pandemic and as we're hopefully winding down is the access to telehealth um, when furnished by physical therapists and physical therapist assistants. Um, we have had a lot of leeway uh, as a result of the public health emergency, but we also know that as the public health emergency comes to an end, many of the provisions for telehealth are set to expire. Uh, one of those is the ability for physical therapists to utilize telehealth under Medicare. And we know, just a reminder, um, CMS does not have the authority, uh, the statutory authority to extend that beyond the public health emergency. So we are requiring congressional action. And um, we encourage all of you to go to the advocacy page and get involved in terms of uh, telehealth. Um, but on the commercial side, we're seeing more um, more. Uh, light at the end of the public health emergency as, a, as it relates to telehealth. We've seen several large commercial payers and many small local payers uh, institute permanent policies. So the ability for therapists to provide care via telehealth when the, post, uh, when the public health emergency ends will continue um, with many of these payers. We continue to advocate strongly uh, our, our position is that telehealth is not a replacement, but that it is a, a useful adjunct and the uh, pandemic demonstrated its um, utility and the fact that there are other situations in which patients might have difficulty getting to a clinic beyond just a pandemic or public health emergency. And we believe having that tool available on an ongoing basis is really important. And I think the other thing is that, you know, customers have kind of spoken they got the opportunity to engage with their healthcare providers via telehealth, and they really uh, want to retain that opportunity. Again, not as a replacement, but as a means to an end when there are barriers to physically getting to a clinic. So we'll continue, um, and we'll continue also to provide information and updates on how to effectively deliver care via telehealth. Yeah, you know, we talk a lot about, um, it's kind of a recurring theme that, uh, when CMS institutes changes at Medicare, that they tend to, there's the ripple effect, right? They tend to go to the commercial payers, the commercial payers pick them up. But it almost seems like, like, like something like the, we've got the potential for something like the reverse to happen, where the commercial payers are, are kind of setting the, 
almost setting the policy stage. Um, what do you think? Do you think that that success of telehealth at the commercial level, does it give advocates leverage to press for telehealth and Medicare? I think it definitely does. And again, I, I'm, I don't think CMS is really opposed to it. They simply don't have the statutory authority to make it happen. So they're relying upon Congress, as are we, uh, to give CMS that ability to permanently add physical therapists um, and physical therapist assistants as eligible providers. And we're optimistic that that will occur. The commercial payers aren't restrained um, the way CMS is. So it has been easier for them to adopt these permanent policies. Uh, it's still not 100% across the board with all commercial payers, but we've definitely seen some strong positive movement. So Elise, uh, telehealth hasn't been the only thing that's been happening in the commercial payer world, right? Yeah, that's true. Um, I wanted to add a couple of things to talk about changes in the UM space, and particularly one of the new vendors that uh, appeared at the beginning of 2021, which is Cohere. They signed an agreement with Humana, and they're covering the author prior authorization of MSK or musculoskeletal services in 12 states um, in different parts of the country. The, we aren't hearing of a lot of issues except in one state who, one provider that has a lot of clinics in that state. So we do encourage you to let us know if you're hearing of problems. Uh, right now they're operational, I believe it's in Alabama, Georgia, Indiana, Michigan, Ohio, Kentucky, North Carolina, Pennsylvania, South Carolina, Virginia, Tennessee, and West Virginia. And again, that went effective on 1121. Uh, APTA has met with um, Humana and Cohere to talk about the program and to learn more about how it works and what kind of issues providers may encounter. Uh, they have indicated they are willing to mitigate uh, and to work with us to address problems as they occur. Uh, but again, so far we have not been hearing a lot of issues. So if you do hear of anything, please let us know. As far as we know, Orthonet continues to handle the Humana business in other parts of the country uh, for Humana. And whether or not that will change in the future, we're not quite clear. Uh, the other thing that we've been told, and, and I've been working with NIA Magellan. NIA Magellan is a UM vendor that's actually been around for a while, uh, but they were acquired by Centene, which is a, one of the largest Medicaid managed care organizations. Uh, they were acquired at the beginning of this year on 1421. So now Magellan is integrated within Centene. As part of that integration, they assumed oversight for Centene's Ambetter exchange plans. So these are Medicaid plans that are on the um, exchanges for the ACA, and those are spread widely across the country. Uh, again, we have not been hearing a lot from providers but we encourage you to let us know if you do. Um, but we have ongoing discussions with Magellan and meet with them quarterly. So we have opportunities to, to address these as they occur. Yeah, I wanted to, um, I wanted to, to you mentioned the ongoing meetings. I want, I, what are those like? Have they, have those conversations evolved over the, over the years that you've been doing them? Um, you know, what do you, yeah. what do you sit around and talk about? Well, you know, basically, I would say that the early discussions back when I started about seven years ago, they were quite confrontational, and many of the programs that had rolled out at that time were particularly difficult and really a big change for providers. Uh, many of these changes occurred with UM as a result of the Affordable Care Act, one of the provisions that really stimulated interest on the payer's end to start looking at utilization management as a, a tool. Um, and, and that really increased the UM on, on rehab providers. So it added a lot of stress. 
So our, our meetings in the beginning were really dealing with mitigation and bringing forth our issues with the uh, concept um, in the UM vendors we're using to use a really heavy sledgehammer on all providers, even those that were compliant. So the meetings that we have now, because they are longstanding, many of these companies we've dealt with now over the course of the last seven years, they've developed over time. But as the new vendors come into the market, it really becomes sort of the same pattern. The early discussions are about what is the program doing? How does it operate? And then we try to deal with the issues as they come up. As time moves forward and we've dealt with some of these payers on an ongoing basis and some of the vendors, uh, we try to look at educating the UM vendors on our position on UM, which is that you know we want to restrict the prior authorization to outliers and that those outlier providers are properly identified through data analysis, that they shouldn't be using this heavy sledgehammer on all providers, that many providers are performing at a high level and they don't need to have this oversight on a regular basis for ongoing prior author you know, every couple of visits. It doesn't make a lot of sense. It doesn't make sense for the payer, nor does it make sense for the UM vendor, nor does it make sense for the provider. It adds cost and increases burden, and in the end, causes patient delays. So it doesn't really do anyone um, any good in, in the long run. Uh, so we also talk about payers managing costs in terms of total cost of care and not using PTUM in silo. Um, they need to look at what is the impact of PT. If it's a couple of extra visits, but it reduces the need for radiology, opioids, pain meds, physician visits, surgery, and ER admissions, it's well worth their while. The data is already out there. We know this from the Optum studies and other studies that have been done, that early access to PT makes a big difference in full cost of care and ultimately patient outcomes. It's better for the patient who really should be the focus of this and not necessarily the provider. We also would like to see payers exempt providers that collect outcomes. If they're already doing this data collection uh, and they're willing to share it with the payers, you know, using a nationally recognized system and using that in exchange for doing ongoing UM, you know, we think that makes a lot of sense, but also that that data that they're using, if they're using that to improve practice and they're using evidence-based practice, that's to everyone's advantage. Um, so we're looking at a lot of different things in these conversations with payers, and we try to move them in the direction of PT value, uh, moving away from PT as a really a commodity and looking at what does it bring to the healthcare system. And all too often, the data that these payers look at is siloed off as PT alone. And that's not where our value lies. Our value lies in preventing other, other costs and other um, services within the healthcare system. So really the, the conversations have really evolved over time into something more of a trying to change the way they view us and how they apply UM. Well, and it would seem like, it would just seem that the, 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 broader, the broader environment is changing at the same time. I mean, with, you know, it seems like with the rise of bundled care uh, programs and things like that, the, 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 the writing's kind of on the wall to start thinking about things a little bit more holistically, I, I would think. Yeah, definitely, Troy. And that's those are the issues that we bring up. And you know, the other thing is many of these vendors have the data. So part of our discussions are how do we look at partnering and collaborating and maybe working on pilots that will demonstrate the value of PT. At, at many of these companies, really almost all now at this point, have PTs that are integrated in high-level positions, which is great for the profession. Um, you know, they understand physical therapy, and many of them uh, 
you know, understand the value of PT. And, and, you know, we've had discussions ongoing about how do we start to do that um, and to move forward. One of the challenges, some of the UM vendors don't have payment authority, you know, they're only doing UM. So it really depends on the structure of the, of the vendor. Um, but that is certainly a discussion we have with all payers and, and particularly with the UM vendors. Well, that's, we were talking kind of about sort of process um, change, uh, but let's talk about some emerging trends in the UM space. Uh, what's been happening lately? You know, what I would mention are a couple of things. One is vendor integration. And I know I mentioned this a minute ago about Centene merging with NIA Magellan. Over the last couple of years, we've seen a big change in terms of the national payers and utilization management. Uh, the only one, you know, long-term that has been integrated together was Optum and UHC, uh, which has been sort of their um, innovation arm for many years. And so they were kind of the first. But over the last year, Centene merged with NA Magellan. That was back in January. Cigna um, merged with Express Scripts. And as part of that merger, Evacor was included in that package. So that happened in December of 2018. Um, Anthem created AIM. American, it's their AIM Specialty Health, which is their UM arm, and that happened back in 2018. So most of these companies, you can see the pattern where they're integrated within the, uh, the payers' services. They're no longer separate companies. They're under their umbrella as subsidiaries. We're also seeing the advent of what we're calling site of service programs. And we've seen these now with three different payers um, and UM vendors, including Anthem AIM, Evacor, and UHC has them in one market. Under these programs, um, the vendor or the payer puts in place requirements for medical necessity review of PTOT and speech services. And they're looking to determine if the site of care is optimal. So not just the care itself, but where it's being delivered. The goal of these reviews is to really assess appropriate of care in the outpatient hospital setting. So if care, when they do their assessment is deemed inappropriate, they deny care at the outpatient hospital site and move the patient to a freestanding clinic. Uh, this program has gone live with AIM Specialty Health effective August of this year of 2021, and they implemented it in a number of states, um, nine in, in, that we know of for fully insured Anthem enrollees. But AIM has plans to expand the program with implementation across all plan types into the end of this year and the beginning of next. Well, uh, what's, uh, what's APTA's take on all that? We have concerns and we've written letters to AIM, we've written letters to um, UHC um, citing our concerns on patient access and also on patient choice. Uh, there are patients that are much more appropriately served when they have other problems outside of just PT issues that they're being serviced for that they need integration of care, whether it's multidisciplinary issues whether it's requirement for um, uh, monitoring during treatment, whether they have a physician that only you know, has access to that hospital and has a certain protocol they want followed. And, and you know, also, like I said, patient choice as well. And you know, distances traveled, um, if the hospital is the closest to the patient, there are numerous things that we're looking at as well as specialty services. You know, if, a, if a provider needs a certain type of service, are we gonna send them to a clinic that doesn't do that routinely? Or are we going to send them where their best, um, where their needs are going to be best met? So APTA, like I said, has written letters. There's also advocacy at the local level by the chapters. Um, we have obviously APTA is composed of not only private 
practices, but providers in the hospital setting. So APTA has conversations with our council, the Health Systems Council, that is composed of large uh, hospital groups. So they're aware of this program. We've also been working at uh, a more national level to educate the other disciplines that are involved, including OT and speech therapy, to work with the American Hospital Association and also working with the local chapters of AHA through our chapters. So there's been strong advocacy and, and some success, um, but, but it is definitely a challenge. Well, and I would think that um, it's a good thing that we've done some relationship building to start with uh, too. So we're not coming in you know, completely cold into some of these conversations. We've got some relationships that can't hurt. Um, so we're gonna take a quick break and when we come back, we'll be talking about what to do when you face a challenge with a UM program and how to avoid those challenges in the first place. And now for a quick break. Better together, together again. Join thousands of attendees from around the world in person and online for APTA's combined sections meeting, February 2nd through 5th, 2022. This year, there are two ways to participate, in person or virtually. The in-person event will take place February 2nd through 5th in San Antonio, Texas. Visit apta.org CSM for more details. And now let's return to the show. All right. We wanted to talk a little bit about um, probably everybody's experienced at one point or another, and that's when there's a challenge. And I want to start with what do we really mean by challenges when we say challenges with UM programs? What are you hearing, Elise? Um, and has the landscape changed over the years uh, in that way, too? Yeah, Troy, you know, we have been hearing of continued issues. However, it depends on where the rollout is with the UM vendor. Uh, typically, they, we get less complaints as the programs mature, um, but many planes, complaints up front. So it really depends on kind of where they are in that, in that continuum. However, you know, we keep on hearing from payers and UM vendors that they want specific data on what they can do to address the issues. So we get anecdotal complaints and providers will say, oh, you know, I'm waiting too long for care, care is delayed, or the authorization process is not working and I can't get into the system. What the payers will tell us is they want to have that case number or prior auth number. So patient, the identified information that we can pass along that gives them uh, the ability to look at their systems to see what's happening on their end and whether or not they can track the issue. Um, so we would you know, certainly encourage providers to let us know specifics and we, we encourage providers to report those kind of challenges to the chapters too and their ED at the local level. So we can start to track these and figure out what's happening and try to get them researched and hopefully mitigated. Um, but we continue to hear of challenges. Many of the challenges sent around the portals that these UN vendors have um, enacted on each, each portal is different. Each one has different requirements, which really adds a lot of stress for the clinics and their administrative staff trying to figure out you know, what to put in these data points, many of which are clinically related and trying to figure out how they answer those questions appropriately. It's really a challenge. And there's also delays built into these systems. Um, there's also errors on eligibility when a patient is supposed to be requiring prior auth and not requiring it. And then providers get denied on the back end. Um, you know, and at the end of this all is the patient and whether or not the care that's being prior authorized is appropriate. And we hear all too often that the care is not being delegated at appropriate intervals and that patients are not getting the care that they need. 
which, you know, overall, we've seen all the studies. If they, this will have a long-term impact on patients' ability to improve and really increases the cost overall for healthcare. So we keep on advocating and, and hitting on that front. So there are opportunities to address these challenges, but I guess it begs a question as to what we can do to avoid these challenges in the first place. And Elise, what do you think? You know, I think there are some ways we can help to mitigate. I'm not sure that we can actually avoid them, which would be nice if we could. Um, mm. There are things we can do to improve it and reduce it a burden kind of on both sides, you know, and one thing is, is always an issue is making sure that your documentation is complete and up to date and make sure what we hear from you and vendors is that they tend to prior authorize more visits if you have an outcomes tool, a standardized tool that you use consistently on each patient. So make sure you use an outcomes tool to ensure that you get the maximum visits that you'll need for that patient. Also use the UM vendors portal when you can. We know that these are a challenge they really prefer and look for providers to use those portals whenever possible. We know that some providers were still are submitting um, either by fax if the vendor allows it or by telephone, but it takes longer on your side as well as theirs. So, so I, I think another thing, and this goes uh, back to what somewhat of what Elise was talking about, is to really prepare as much as possible ahead of time. So keep an eye out for provider updates from the payer. Uh, so that you're aware that these changes are coming down the pike and know what's expected of you. Um, I think sometimes what happens is providers are kind of caught off guard. They've been following a process right along. The process changed, but they didn't know it. And so they end up getting denials because they didn't request authorization when it's now required, or they failed to uh, use the portal for something that they now need to. APTA works very hard to try to provide updates through the pay chairs uh, to let them know when some of these things are coming down the pike. Um, so keep informed, you know, check on the communications that come out from your chapter, check on the communications that come out from the payer uh, and try to set up a system and a process uh, that's going to be effective for that uh, specific payer and UM vendor. It's a challenge. Uh, as Elise said, one of the greater, greatest challenges is the fact that we don't have any kind of universal standard. Each payer is writing their own script and the providers are at the mercy of following that script and understandably a challenge. Um, one of the other things that you know, we are looking forward to is as we get more focus on value, as we get more standard utilization of um, objective tests and measures and outcome measures that hopefully we can create a little bit more standardization around this whole process. Speaking of standardization and speaking of um, mitigating challenges um, and being aware and up to date and all the rest of it, I know that there are some coding issues that we uh, need to touch on. Yes, uh, Troy, one of the big things that are challenging providers right now is a change in the ICD-10 codes for low back pain, uh, codes that physical therapists frequently use. And the Big change is that um, the code M54.5 has been deleted. Uh, this is supposed to be effective October 1st, uh, but we've learned over the last couple of weeks that some of the payers have adopted this change already. And as a result, providers are seeing denials. So M54.5 has been replaced with three other codes. 
Um, and the goal is greater specificity around um, the diagnosis of low back pain. So we have M54.50, 0, 0.51, and 0.59. Those three codes um, provide greater specificity. So if you still are using M54.5, you want to update your systems. If you're getting denials based on M54.5, you'll want to turn to one of these newer, more specific codes. APTA will have information on its website about these changes. Uh, you certainly can appeal because the changes were not supposed to go into effect until October 1st, but um, given how close we are to the implementation date, it may be better to just resubmit the claim with the updated code at this point. Okay, you heard it here. Um, we had another we had another coding issue too, as I recall. Uh, remote the remote therapeutic. So this is something coming in 2022. As of January 1, 2022, there were five new codes that were approved uh, through CPT and by CMS for remote therapeutic monitoring. Uh, the challenge that we're having with CMS is that in the proposed rule. CMS indicated that they felt that the codes described services that were incident two. And since physical therapists cannot bill incident two, they are saying these codes are not available to PTs. Uh, we, we are challenging that. We've submitted comments, uh, we believe, and have been in consultation with AMA and with CPT uh, that the codes do represent services that should be, uh, be able to be billed by physical therapists. But we're going to work through the challenges on the CMS side. Um, we are optimistic that on the commercial side, these codes will be available. Um, we encourage therapists to look at the codes, become familiar with them, understand what's required in order to build those codes. And we'll continue to provide guidance um, in terms of the utilization of the codes, both under Medicare as well as in the commercial space as we move closer to January 1. Well, thanks. You know, we um, you mentioned uh, the ICD-10 information on our website. That's there. Uh, there's a whole host of other information uh, relative to commercial payment, to UMs, uh, to challenges and guidance around that. So thanks, Elise and Alice. And as always, APTA is here for you. In addition to our weekly email blast, we offer podcasts, APTA live events, webinars, and other resources to help you stay informed. And if you want to tune into all the activity going on in payment relative to physical therapy, including many of our advocacy efforts, sign up for our Friday-focused monthly collection of payment-related articles and resources delivered direct to your inbox on the fourth Friday of every month. It's all free. Just search for email preferences in the search bar at APTA.org and sign up. So again, thanks, Alice and Elise. I know this isn't the easiest stuff to understand, but I think you've really helped to make things a lot clearer. So, so again, thank you. As a final reminder, be sure to visit APTA.org where you'll find more resources on all of the topics we talked about today. And follow us on Facebook and Twitter. It's at APTA Tweets. APTA podcasts like this one are available on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Spotify or by visiting apta.org slash podcasts. I'm Troy Elliott, and thanks for listening.